Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we worship and fellowship together. To find out more about Waterbrook, go to www.waterbrook.church. We really feel that God has called us here and that he has placed us here for a mission, a purpose in the community, to have a different tone, have a message in the community of the gospel, of the hope of the gospel, to minister to broken and needy people and to go out into the nations, the neighborhood and the nations. We believe God will use our little church to change the world. We believe that's what he loves to do. He's already done it. And so, you know, the other, one of the other things that was a blessing to me when I came to Waterbrook was that I realized that Waterbrook was actually a collection of missionaries. That there were so many people in this church who were leading ministries, either in the community or beyond this community. And so part of my calling was to harness all of these <laughs> um, strong horses that the Lord had put in the race um, together for the sake of the gospel. And he's been doing that, pulling us together. You know how he usually does it? He breaks us. That's the history of Waterbrook. The other history that we don't talk about, we talk about some of the high points. There have been some difficult low points, some grieving some pain, some brokenness, and yet the Lord has even using the bro- used the brokenness to bind us together so that we might be able to share that Jesus is more than enough, as we sang this morning. And so that's my uh, hope and prayer for you this morning, is that you will just savor Jesus today, that he would build up your faith. Now, um, I also believe that this message this morning was ordained by God for this Sunday, because of all the Sundays, I'm going to talk about financial freedom, which is, you know, I've been studying, I've been, we've been studying Hebrews for a hundred years. We are at this text on this Sunday. I did not plan this Sunday, and you know, I'm not that organized to know what sermon I'm going to preach two weeks. Anybody that works with me knows he doesn't know Friday if he's actually going to say what he's sending us. So, um, it it is very mobile. But um, the truth of the matter is, as we come to uh, this text in Hebrews, I want to build on the foundation of the gospel and that the Lord provides for his people so that we might do mission and ministry. That he equips us in practical ways in order that we might see spiritual and eternal results and fruit in the lives of people. And so, you know, one of the challenges that faces any Christian, but particularly in the Western world, but I don't think it's unique to the Western world, one of the challenges to us is not to be seduced by the lure of riches, financial riches. And um, we had our movie on on Friday night on American Gospel. Those of you who were here saw that it was a clear correction to the prosperity gospel, which I think many times takes advantage of the least and the most needy and the most vulnerable people by promising to them if they just had enough faith, they would have health. If they just had enough faith, they would have wealth. And it, it sells them a false bill of goods that doesn't stand up when we realize, as we've been singing today, that the treasure isn't earthly treasures. The treasure is the King of Heaven, Jesus Christ. And the promise is eternal life, and the call is costly. And so under the conversation we have about 
finances and prosperity and wealth is the call of the gospel. And the call of the gospel is one of sacrifice, to take up your cross, to trust Jesus to resource us, not just financially but emotionally, into the places in which he calls us. My conviction is that what the Lord will do is break people so that they can see where life is found. That under the pursuit and beyond the pursuit of comfort and success and ease is the reality that there is disease of a spiritual nature. There is a disorientation away from Jesus Christ. There is a wrong-centeredness that has all kinds of catastrophic consequences, drawing people away from life, promising them hope that doesn't deliver, leaving them ragged and addicted and lost. And so how we understand wealth and financial freedom is crucial to the way that we engage the world because the world needs to hear a different message, needs to see a different set of priorities, needs to hear Jesus as he really is. So here's what I want to begin with by saying. I do not believe primarily that the American gospel movie that we showed the other night is Waterbrook's chief danger. I don't know any people at Waterbrook who believe that if you have enough faith, you will fly a Learjet. I don't know anybody here, maybe here, but I don't know anybody here that believes that if you believe in Jesus, you will never get sick. When we just, I'm just sitting here thanking that Alice is here today. We've been thanking God that Karen Smith got through her surgery this last little while that Heidi has got her surgery done just in the last week just in the last while thanking that Bruce's mom is now healed and in heaven after a long struggle but as we think about those things and as we come to the issue of finances I think the challenge that we are faced with is the challenge that is common to um, the, the kind of the middle class, but I would also say the lower class of society, and it's that when you go through times of difficulty and struggle, there is a temptation to shift your hope away from Jesus to money, to be preoccupied and consumed with a level of comfort that captures your affections, demands your emotions, draws you into a busyness that causes you to lose clarity on the mission of the gospel. That's where the battle is, isn't it? I would say that if I talk to people, I wouldn't hear them say, I'm really, biz- or, I'm really burdened by the fact that I'm not a billionaire yet. What I would hear people say is, I'm tired. I'm struggling. I'm busy. I'm overwhelmed. I feel like life is sucking everything out of me. And and so what I put up here is the challenge that faces most of us is not overt seduction of the prosperity gospel. It's the subtle temptation toward a less risky, less costly Christian life. That's what calls me. I don't want any more pain. I don't want any more problems. And I give that contextually for the letter of Hebrews, because these people have already suffered for the gospel. And if you read as we did in chapter 10, for some of them, they identified with people who went to prison because of the gospel, and because they went to prison for the gospel, and they identified with those who went to prison for the gospel, some of them lost their homes. 
some of the most difficult times in their lives was when they decided to follow Jesus. Has that been true for you? Sometimes the decision to follow Jesus alienates you from the people that you know and love, the community you belong, the businesses. There was a high price to pay, and the writer to the Hebrews could not say to them, you Christians have paid your price, now it's going to get easy. The Bible never says that. Jesus never promises that. And when we get to this point where we thank God for put, giving, putting the bonds away, you know, one of, the, one of the realities in church growth literature is one of the most dangerous times in the church is the burning of the mortgage. That's in the literature. I just took a course on strategic leadership. One of my books says, and I think it's the sixth chapter, one of the books, the title is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. That's the title of the book. It says one of the most dangerous times in the life of the church is when it burns its mortgage. You know why? Because when you get to the point, you've paid the price. And when we get to the point of paying the price, what do we want to do? Aren't you all waiting for easy street? Aren't you just wanting to get to that point where your weary bones get rest? Now, you have the promise that rest is coming. Isn't that good news? But the reality is there's still a world in need of Jesus. And there will be a price to pay. And so the danger for me is not that I, I want to be a billionaire and live in the best hotels and travel around and live the luxury life. The danger for me is I just don't want to pay the price anymore. I don't want to carry the cross. I don't want to suffer for Jesus. So it's that middle class lifestyle that marginalizes most gospel ministry. Do you believe that? Somewhat true. The danger for us is that comfortable Christianity sets in. I've paid my dues. I've done my time. And then guess what happens? I, I see this all the time with older Christians. They say to me, when do I have to stop working at this? They're talking about their own spiritual lives. They're talking about caring about their parents. They're talking about struggles with their kids. They're talking about living in the community in a fallen world. And at some point in time, we think, do, is, what point in time does it become easy street? And the answer is, there's comfort coming, but not yet in that comfort. One day he will make all things new. One day he'll wipe away every tear. One day there'll be no more doctor's appointments. One day it'll be glorious. But right now, the comfort is inside the will of God following Jesus Christ sacrificially. He is our comfort. He is our rest. And so when we come to this text of Scripture, this is what I want to say. Financial freedom is not when you don't have to worry about money anymore. Financial freedom is when anxiety over money no longer kills availability for ministry. So can I repeat that just so it's clear? Did I put it up there? I probably didn't put it up there. Sorry, Linnea. Linnea's going back there. No, you didn't. So let me tell you it again. <laughs> Financial freedom is when anxiety over money no longer kills availability for ministry. So let's just all think about that and pray about that. I honestly believe that every one of us is affected by this. You can't be in this part of the world and not struggle with that. So here's what I want to do in this text. I want to show you in, in Hebrews chapter 13, 5 and 6, how we are to be encouraged in the ministry at the cost that comes in following Christ. 
And so here, let me read it, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, and then let's think about it for a few moments together. Keep your life free from love of money. Is that good? Is that clear? And it says, be content with what you have. For he, who's he? God, it's Christ, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Have you ever gone back to that verse? Isn't that a great verse when you're alone? When you're broken? When you're struggling? When you're anxious? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Quote. Verse 6. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? My prayer this morning is that you will leave with verse 6 as your verse today. That you will leave Waterbrook and you will say, the, sorry, i got to say this differently. You will not leave Waterbrook. You are Waterbrook if you're part of this. You will leave as the church. You'll leave the building but you will leave as the church saying these words, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? I say that because I know some of you feel far from it right now. And we all struggle with that. But let's go back and talk about a wrong view, the warning here about money and what we're supposed to do. So here's my first point. The problem, I believe, that we're being warned against is an idolatrous view of money that can slowly and subtly remove or erode our commitment to the cause of Christ and a sacrificial concern for people. That's the danger. An idolatrous, we begin to trust in money, not in Christ. We trust in the, in the, in the human resources rather than the source of every good gift. So the exhortation here is not to let that happen. So let me talk to you about what happens when you have an idolatrous. You know what an idol is, right? You're trusting in something created rather than the creator. You're trusting in something supplied rather than the supplier. Idolatry is not trusting. Idolatry is trusting anything but Jesus. Anyone but God. So in this text of Scripture, we'll go to the next slide here, Linnea, thanks. Um, Our affections, it talks about, are where we have to be careful. So idolatry begins with misplaced affections. What does he say here? Keep yourself from what? The love of money. That your heart, that your affections get set on money. Now I want to show you something, give you a little Greek lesson down at the bottom here. But in Hebrews chapter 13, at the beginning, after he's told them Jesus is enough, Jesus is supreme, Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father, every day interceding as it comes back to us over and over again, Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than the law and the prophets, Jesus is better than the tabernacle, Jesus is better than the sacrifices, because Jesus is everything those things were pointing to. So as you come that Jesus is everything, he says, don't then let another love come in. Writing to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, you have left your first 
love. Money wants to take your love. I don't care too much for money because money can't buy me love, can't buy me love. Oh, sorry. Right? The Beatles even understood that. Here's your Greek lesson. In the first verse of 13, we are told what? To continue in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, philos is love, love of the brethren, Adelphos. Continue, keep the love of the brethren going. In the next verse, we are told to love strangers, to show hospitality, philoxenia. So he's using the same word here. He's using the idea of love. He says, make sure you keep loving the brethren. Make sure you reach out and love and minister to those who are in need, who are strangers. He's calling us to love one another and to love our neighbors as ourselves in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he says, but do not love this. Money. That's what that philargoros. In the Greek, it actually has that word philargoros with an alpha, A, at the beginning. Whenever that's at the beginning, it says no. Not, do not love money. Philon writes in his commentary, the love of money can be an ugly expression of deep-rooted selfishness. It can keep Christians from helping their fellow men who are in need. It can make them think of protecting their possessions rather than maintaining their solidarity with those who are outcast, despised, and ill-treated. So what he's saying here is some of your brothers are going to prison. Don't stop loving them because you're too busy trying to get wealthy. Some of your neighbors need to hear about Jesus and need compassion. Some are in prison. You are called to do that kind of love. Be very careful that you don't turn, have that subtle shift in your heart where your affections, you no longer love Christ and you no longer love your neighbor as yourself, but now you love yourself instead. The warning here is about, well, here's what happens. We start possessing and stop blessing, right? We start to be protective over our possessions. Now, I want to say this uh, It's a warning to us in our culture and in our community, but you have to remember this warning and these warnings were given to Christians who were being persecuted. This was written to Christians when Jesus talks about wealth, he's talking to poor disciples who had left everything to follow him. So it's an insidious thing that can come in, particularly if you've paid the price. Because when you've been wounded and you paid the price, there's a temptation to think, I don't want to pay the price anymore. Let somebody else pay the price, Jesus, right? And, of course, there's all kinds of consequences to that. But one of the things is, it's not what you have in your bank account that limits your ability to be generous. It's whether or not your heart is bankrupt, I want you to go to a text of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is one of those beautiful texts of Scripture where we are told of the love of Christ being modeled in the life of Christians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 to 10. So let me say this. You can be poor and be a lover of money and you can be wealthy and not be a lover of money. It's what's in your heart. It's not what's in your bank account. Got that? So I want to show you an example here. Second Corinthians chapter 8. I say this 
not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your what? Your love is genuine. So he's writing to the Corinthians, and he knows that back in Jerusalem, there are believers who are paying the price for identifying with Jesus. And he says, I want you to show that your love is the real deal. So he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel. This is where it's rooted and modeled. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was what? Rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you may become rich. Now don't read this wrongly. It is not saying that Jesus became a man and was born in a stable and lived in a poor Jewish family so you could buy a Learjet. That's not what it's saying. It's saying the gospel, the Holy One of Heaven, the precious treasure of God, the Son, the one who reigned at the right hand and reigns now at the right hand of the Father, took on our humanity. He moved to the, to the brokenness. The filthiness of planet earth. He moved into our world and became poor so that through his poverty we might be raised up as those who belong to God as joint heirs with Christ. I'm a joint heir with Christ because Jesus joined me in my sin. He never sinned. He took on my sin so that I might be forgiven of my sin and might inherit with him forever the inheritance that belongs to him. So this morning when the prayer group was meeting over in the farmhouse, we began by reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who caused us to be born again, in his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from the dead into an what? inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, which is kept in heaven for you who are being kept by the power of God through faith for that salvation ready to be revealed. My dear friends, your inheritance is solid. It's not in the stock market. It's not being negotiated with China. It isn't dependent on the economy of the U.S. Your inheritance is in Christ and it is solid and sure forever. That's what he has done. So listen to this. In verse 9, and in this matter, I give my judgment that this befets... Oh, sorry, I'm going to go back. I want, I want to go back. I jumped in a little late. I, that's the gospel. That's the center. Let's look at the example before. He says in verse 1 of chapter 8, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part how do you get generous people you mix joy in Jesus joy in the gospel with poverty now what he says there how did they get extreme generosity they took a bunch of poor people and gave them Jesus and those people began to beg to bless other people That's what he says. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Isn't that remarkable? When Jesus gets a hold of a heart, the Christian says, if Jesus has been so kind to me, who can I help? How can I help? How can I serve? And so, you know, that... One of the ways that you know you're a redneck 
One of the ways you know you're a lover of money is you're more into possessing than blessing. Because when the gospel gets a hold of you, the greatest joy, Jesus said it is more what? Blessed to give than to receive. Secondly, let's go to the next one. Misplaced affections, misdirected ambitions. That's what idolatry does. Go back to chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be what? Content with what you have. Isn't contentment hard? Because what is the, what's, the way, what's the way we sell things in the world? You create discontent. You create this thing that you're, I mean, we're, we're sitting here, we, the three of us here yesterday were comparing our iPhones. I don't know, are we at the iPhone 1,000 yet? We're looking at the cameras, we're looking at the screens, we're looking at what, you know, I've got the tiny who, person who doesn't know how to use a phone version. Marianne has the sort of next up version. Andrew's company just bought him a new version. We're comparing all these things. You know what we all know? This time next year, the same conversation will be had with new phones. Right? Same song, second verse, a little bit louder, a little bit worse. Right? We just keep telling ourselves that we, we won't be happy till we have what? More. The next thing. And so what ends up happening is instead of prizing Christ and people in the first thing, right, we end up prizing our possessions. In this text, when you're not content, you end up pursuing material possessions. I always want more. I always need more instead of pursuing Christ and people. That's what kills the message. That's what kills the ministry. William Lane says in this text, this call to contentment is grounded firmly in the promise that God will always be with us. God is your treasure. God is what you need. So let me take you to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Go to 1 Timothy, not too far before where you are, because we need to understand that if you are going to not be a wrongful lover of money in our culture, you have to learn the secret of contentment. And contentment is being thankful and satisfied and at peace with what God providentially has given you. Not looking over your shoulder, not looking over the fence, not looking at your neighbor. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. Paul writes to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. The best thing, best happiness you could have is to be content with what you have. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and what? We are not going to take anything out of this world. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. This is what the Bible argues. In fact, one of the concerns that you get in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is teaching is that people get anxious about not whether or not they're going to have a Learjet, not whether they're not going to live in a mansion, not whether or not they're going to be able to go all the vacations they want to go on. The question that people face is, will I have enough to food my, feed my family and clothe my back and shelter my household? And the argument of Jesus is, is God a caring, compassionate God? Can you count on God? 
Godliness with contentment is great gain. But then he warns down underneath that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You've got to read this, um, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Do you believe that? The love of the money is the root of all kinds. not saying money. It's the love of money. It's when it gets your affections and it becomes part of your ambitions. Let me read you what a common scenario is that Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Do you think Jesus wanted to talk about a struggle over who gets the inheritance? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Hard in America not to believe that your possessions are your identity, that your life will be the balance sheet at the end. My dear friends, the balance sheet of your riches will not be entered into the logbook of heaven except about what you did with it. So Jesus told them a parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. What's the problem there? What would it, what, how could you solve a problem of having too many crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. Then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, move to Palm Springs, go to Scottsdale, settle down, live the good life. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays treasure up for himself and is not rich toward God. What do we think? God needs to be rich towards me. What does Jesus say? You need to be rich towards God. Isn't that an upside down message? But you see, one of the ways to check my heart if I am a lover of money is to say, am I pursuing money or am I pursuing ministry? Because there's the money in front of the man. He has two choices. And what he does is he makes money his pursuit rather than ministry his pursuit. And that's the switch that turns him away from Christ. So that's misguided as well. So let's go to the next one. Misdirected ambitions. Finally, misguided apprehensions. The rest of the text in verse 6 is about not being afraid, right? That's why I said, I hope at the end you can say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know what happens when money becomes your God? Worry becomes your lifestyle. When having more becomes your agenda rather than serving more, what happens? That you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you check the stock market. 
The, the, the futures, you, you look at your bank account, you consider what's going on. That's where you spend the majority of your thinking and you get anxious because the Chinese are in charge. Maybe, or maybe it's Trump getting elected or not elected. Or, you know, you look at all of this stuff and you think, what, what is going on? My dear friends, I'll tell you what's going on. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, ruling all things for the glory, and he is saving and building a kingdom for himself. That doesn't change no matter... Who gets changed amongst the nations, against the borders, amongst the economies of the world? That doesn't change. So, when money becomes the ground of our hopes, we inevitably become anxious when it's put in peril. We end up paranoid and protective of our possessions instead of stewarding them. So that's one of the ways to test. Am I filled with fear or am I totally set free? Freedom versus fear. Because I'm not accountable for what you do with your money. Right? You could have a lot, I could have a little. You might do well with a lot, and I might do lousy with a little. I'm accountable to be a steward of what Jesus has given me. Now, I could say a lot more on this. I'm not a big preacher on the subject of money, as you know, but I'll preach it when it comes up, and I'll preach it passionately when it comes up, so that's where we are today. But let me tell you a little story in my life that when I grew up in a small village in southern Ontario, south of Detroit in Canada, the, the, the town I lived in had one main company. It was a fishing farming village, so they had fishing and they had farming. It was a vegetable factory and a fishing factory. One family owned it. I came to Christ in a youth group meeting in the basement of the family that owned that company. On Friday, Marion died. Bob had died a couple years ago. From the time I was 13, they prayed for me. When I, what I remember, my kids even remember this, when I was growing up, there's a lot of Jamaicans and, and Hispanics that would come in and farm in the summertime. When we would go over to swim in their pool, there would be Jamaicans riding in on their bikes. There would be Hispanics jumping into the pool. They used their home for the kingdom. When I got called to ministry, I went to Tyndale Seminary, and I showed up to pay my tuition, and my first tuition, year's tuition was paid in full, um, anonymously. But it doesn't work when you come from a town of 1,500 and there's only one person in town who can pay your tuition in full on the spot. I knew who gave my tuition. Every year for our whole lives, every February since Marianne and I've been married, I get a check for $100 from Marion Olmsted saying, take your wife out for dinner. So Friday she died. Pray, because I know many, many, many of us, many of us who are in the, mission, in the ministry, on the mission field because of them, I pray that she's rejoicing now and receiving her reward. Amen. That's my prayer. So the issue for you and I is not how much we have, what are you doing with what you have? And the freedom of the gospel is to follow Jesus Christ and to take what we have and make it be multiplied not into earthly things but into eternal things. Isn't that what's being taught here that's what's being said. So now I'm going to really run through the rest of what I've planned. So help me. 
PowerPoint princess. <laughs> What's the promise? What's the promise that will help us shift away from fearful, holding, and clinging, and possessing? What's the promise? It's the promise of God in the Word where He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said those words to Abraham when he called Abraham to leave everything and follow him in Genesis. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Isn't that great news? That's what God says to all of us. So here's what I think we need to learn. What's the greatest treasure in that text? He is. If you have everything and you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. And if you have nothing and you have Jesus, you have everything. He said, I will never leave you. Do you need to hear that today? What's our greatest treasure? What do we have to offer to the world? We have nothing to offer but Jesus. And if we offer them anything but Jesus or anything apart from Jesus, we offer them false hope, idols, empty promises that once they evaporate by health and, and Medicare and, and whatever you don't have or do have or all that, whatever comes your way, when that's gone, you have nothing. But if you have Christ, you have an ever-living, ever-present, imminent shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. The treasure is Christ. The stewardship, right? Believe Christ is providentially arranging. I will never leave you nor forsake you means providentially. The word providence means that God is actively at work in your life, in all of life's affairs. He giveth. And he taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right? So the person sitting beside you could be a millionaire, and the person on the other side of you could be trying to figure out how to pay their medical bills. We love and serve one another freely in all of this. Why? Because what I have is what he's given me so that I might be his hands, feet, and instrument to the glory and praise of his name in the gospel. That's what he's given me to do, right? That's what it means, I will never leave you. He is, he is not only the one who is my greatest treasure, he is the kindest provider that I could ever have. He doesn't want me to have any more than I need to have, lest I, right, love riches and walk away from him. Or he wants me to have no less than what he gives me, lest I doubt and trust and turn. You have to trust that you are not the owner, you're simply the steward. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This is my father's world. Discipleship. Trust Christ as your eternal source of protection. The safest place in the world is following Christ. All I mean by that is when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he isn't saying, I'm willing to tag along behind you on your little mission of life. That's not what he's saying here. What's he saying? He's saying, come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow me. But I'll tell you this, if you follow me, I'll never abandon you. 
in the brokenness, in the pain, in the heartache, in the trial, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that good news? This is telling us that the call of Christ with whatever gifts, whatever resources, whatever limitations, whatever shutting down of our dreams and our expectations, that's not the issue for us. The issue is simply wherever you've placed me, whatever you've given me, whatever you've called me to do, will you be there? And his answer is, yes, I will. Let me tell you a little story about Tony Dungy. You, those of you who are football people know Tony Dungy was the coach of the uh, Indianapolis Colts, godly guy. What's that? Tony Dungy was with the Minnesota Vikings? First, or fi- did he finish here? When was he here? Yeah. All right, I, I, I'm willing to be corrected in my sermon. That's good, that's good, man. Man, I got to do my research. Well, he, was, he worked for the Minnesota Vikings even more. Thank you. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. (laughs) He played for the Gophers? Man. I'll tell you this. He didn't play for the Toronto Argonauts or the Edmonton Eskimos. Well, you know what? I don't even know. Maybe he did. Sounds like he played for everybody or coached everybody. But Tony Dungy is a Christian. And he talks about what went on in his head as he began to realize what God was doing in his life. Let me read. Just, I just read this article this week. Um, he said, I've had a lot of roles as a student, as a son, an athlete, coach, father, all those, but Christ comes first and directs everything. I think that's how I keep my balance. He said, when reflecting on his life, the former NFL coach and father of 10 said that sometimes he finds himself in awe of where his life has taken them. I remember being on the sidelines. We're winning the Super Bowl, and there's like a minute left, and I know we're going to win, and I think, how did I get here? How am I from Little Jackson, Michigan? How am I coaching the Indianapolis Colts, and we're in the Super Bowl? And he writes, it really is just God's plan and his blessings and so many people kind of pouring into my life and shaping that. Then he goes on to explain the trajectory of his life where he talks about his wife, he and his wife's decision to adopt seven children. He says, my wife always wanted to adopt kids. She always talked about it. It really is just God's plan and his blessings and so many people kind of pouring into my life and shaping that. He says, "Um, my wife wanted to adopt kids. She comes from a large family. It wasn't until 2000 that he knew, too, that he wanted to adopt children. Dungy explained that he was helping one of his assistant coaches complete the adoption process when he learned there was a backload of kids in the city of Tampa wanting to be adopted. He said, I was shocked. We always hear about people going overseas and waiting three years to adopt. And she, an agency, said, no, we have kids we're trying to place in Christian homes and we don't have any parents. As a vocal pro-life advocate, Dungy was struck by how little help was offered after mothers contemplating abortions chose to complete their pregnancies he said my wife and I you know had always talked about being pro-life my wife was going to crisis pregnancy centers and we're talking about the sanctity of life and urging people not to have abortions and then I find out okay this is happening now they make that good decision and nobody's there on the back end to pick up these kids it doesn't seem right to me and we felt like we were able to do something about it 
For Dungy, it was a no-brainer. Once he heard these words, he knew he and his wife were being called to adopt, and they adopted seven children. Now, not everybody here could adopt seven children. But what was Tony Dungy doing? He was believing that God's hand was in the blessing of his life, the directing of his life, the providing of his life. And the question after thinking about that was simply, what do I do with what Jesus has done for me? Isn't that what we need to be asking? We're not getting our identity from what he's given us. God help us that we're not just accumulating, right? We're not protecting and being fearful. In Jesus, we've been set free. How do we use the stewardship of what God has given us to make a maximum impact for the gospel of Christ, for the grace of Christ, for the eternity of souls? Does that not resonate in your heart? Waterbrook does not need to be another church that exists in another town in America. Waterbrook needs to exist to make a difference in this world and for eternity. God has called us to make a difference to the ends of the earth and right next door and in the corners of our homes. That's what we're called to, to the extent that he's made us able to do it. So would you look at this last verse? Let me just say this. Theologically, this is true. The Lord is my helper. That's where we start. That has nothing to do with how you feel. That has everything to do about who he is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news today? It doesn't matter how you felt coming in today. I mean, it does matter. Let me say that wrong. It matters to him. But let me tell you this. No matter how you felt coming in today, one thing is unchanging. Jesus is Lord, and he is your help. Second thing, that's your fact. That's also speak to your feeling. You need to preach to your feelings. I will not what? Fear. So that's personal. That's relational, right? That's a psychological statement. I will not fear. So will you preach that this morning? I've been preaching. Now you preach. Preach to yourself. Preach to your heart. Preach to your anxieties. I will not fear. Why? The Lord is my helper. And then when you walk out, don't look around you and think, what's going to happen to me? Ask this question. What's God going to do? And he's already said it. I will build my church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Oh, dear God, what a glorious message. There's, there's greater comfort in Jesus than in money any day. There's greater purpose in Jesus than simply accumulating as much as we can till we die. There's greater glory, dear God, in living a life where you use people like us to make a difference in mercy and grace and in hope and in life and salvation even to people we haven't yet met this week. So Father, kill in us those fears and anxieties and those wrong priorities and ambitions and reallocate our affections all to Jesus and help us, dear God, to go out into a world 
May Waterbrook make a difference that lasts forever. Help us, dear God. Show us the way. Strengthen each of us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to find out more about Waterbrook Christian Church located in Victoria, Minnesota, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed day.